Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, This is a letter from the disciple, uh, one of Jesus' 12 followers, Peter the Apostle, uh, to a group of churches uh, under the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, roughly modern-day Turkey. We've seen uh, throughout that Peter's view of these churches is that they are living their life, as he says, as resident aliens or as exiles. Right, that they are a minority community within the Roman Empire, worshiping a God that is not recognized by their neighbors, living according to a set of values and principles not widely shared by their neighbors. And so in that world, in this world in which they are an exile community, he's instructing them how to live out their faith. He's been, uh, over the last chapter, talking about the various network of relationships Uh, that they find themselves in, both their political relationships under the authorities, their business relationships, their domestic relationships. Because the gospel, uh, though it comes to us individually, uh, it's not a private matter. It does affect our relationships and our life in the world. And so that is what we will be looking at uh, a bit more today as Peter continues. Our reading uh, starts this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, Peter begins with the word finally, uh, which uh, don't worry, he means finally uh, like a preacher means it. Uh, He's just over halfway through. He's still got two and a half chapters uh, left of preaching to do, Uh, but he still says finally. And so let's let's start uh, our reading of God's word at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Friends, this is God's word. It is given to us in love, and it is absolutely true. Well, we are going to start uh, this morning where Peter ends with considering uh, Christian baptism, because I think that it is uh, the sum of his argument is that your baptism into Christ bears an importance for every other area of your life. And so we'll start with a consideration of what it means uh, to be baptized. And I want to start with two stories, two very different stories about baptism. The first is from one of the great American movies, uh, The Godfather, the story of Michael Corleone, uh, played by Al Pacino. And there's this scene uh, in The Godfather uh, when this man of crime and violence uh, is taking his position as the godfather of this mafia business. And uh, interspersed with scenes of violence and murder, you see another set of images in a beautiful church where Michael uh, is serving as the godfather to the baptism of his nephew. And the director, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, intersperses these scenes of grotesque murder with Michael taking the vows, the traditional Catholic vows of baptism. Do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his pomp? And he says, I renounce them even as his men do his bidding and do his violence. It's a picture of baptism cut off completely from the rest of life. Baptism cut off completely from the ethics by which we live our lives in the real world. Corleone could go through the motions of the baptismal liturgy, and yet at the same time know that these other things were going on at his command, and and the two didn't meet. They didn't have anything to do with one another. That's one story of baptism. Another comes from the Protestant uh, reformer Martin Luther. Luther uh, was given uh, to bouts of anxiety and uh, to despair. He lived a very difficult life, hunted for most of his life by political and religious leaders uh, of his day, uh, believed to be a heretic. And it's said that when anxiety and despair and fear overwhelmed him, he could be heard yelling at times, baptizatus sum, which is Latin for I am baptized. I am baptized. I am baptized. When he was hiding out, uh, sheltered by a prince in a German castle, uh, working to translate the New Testament into German, uh, while uh, persecuted and chased as a heretic, he could be heard in the grounds of the castle yelling to himself, I am baptized. I am baptized. For him, it changed absolutely everything about himself and how he understood his life in the world and how he understood his life Uh, even against the great powers that he found himself up against, the spiritual forces of evil, the political forces and the religious forces of his day. Luther wrote, the only way to drive away the devil 
is through faith in Christ. By saying, I have been baptized. I am a Christian. In one story, baptism changes absolutely nothing. In another story, baptism changes absolutely everything. And Peter uh, here is obviously pointing us in the direction of Luther's example, that baptism should change absolutely everything. He tells us that we belong to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by virtue of our baptism and by virtue of faith. That we live under His reign, having died to sins, having passed with Him through death into resurrection, and now even into His ascended rule. That we belong to Jesus by the virtue of baptism. He uses this great uh, analogy to help us understand the way that this works. He says that uh, just as Noah and his family, eight people in all, Peter points out, just as they passed through the waters of God's judgment in Genesis, and then came out the other side of that watery judgment into new life, so too we come through the waters of baptism and out into new life. God, through Noah and his family, was starting over in the world with a new creation, a new world working itself out through Noah and his descendants. And Peter, to his uh, audience, is saying that God has now done the same thing in the church. When you pass through the waters of baptism, when the water is still wet on your forehead, you come out into a new world, a world made new through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. To be baptized uh, into Christ, to be in Christ by faith, is to be baptized into his victory. His victory over the forces of sin and death and evil and darkness and despair. It's to be baptized into his resurrection. Peter uses this uh, incredibly difficult, uh, this may be one of the more difficult verses uh, in the entire New Testament. When he says, uh, Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then goes into his Noah uh, connection with baptism. Again, Martin Luther uh, said this, he said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Luther was not known for his weak opinions. Uh, he was not known for false humility. In fact, he was uh, most of his life was marked by his taking stands on things that he believed deeply and stubbornly. And yet even he would come to this passage and say, I'm not sure we can completely know what it means. I think our best answers uh, have to do, uh, when, when you look at the, the history of interpretation on this, it's that in Jesus' resurrection, is coming to new life by the Spirit, as Paul describes it, that his resurrection is a testimony, a kind of announcement to the spirits of this world. It's not just an announcement to the human creatures of this world, but also to, to the principalities and powers, to the, the supernatural forces of darkness, that at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, they come to have the message of the gospel preached to them, in a sense. That they are defeated. That they are subdued and done away with. And so then it connects to verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven. 
and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is interesting, and I think it's something that we don't often think of when we think about what our faith in Jesus means, what our baptism into him means, which is that it means his victory as king over all of the rulers of this earth, his lordship over all things. That to be in Christ is to share in his victory, to live our life in this world as an extension of his victory. To participate in his victory over sin and injustice and darkness and evil in our cities, our nations, and our times. Peter wanted his readers to see this, that to belong to Jesus meant that they belonged to the world's true king, his true, the true Lord of all things. That if Jesus is enthroned above angels, authorities, and powers, then that means that these early Christians, these exiles and aliens, that they are in the victorious Lord of the world, right? That uh, included in these powers and authorities are Caesar and his heirs, are the Roman Empire, are the forces of the, the Roman legions, this empire that they found themselves living under the thumb of, that they actually follow the one who is the true king, that one day, uh, his kingship would be made known in a way that showed that even Caesar, even the greatest uh, empire that the world had ever seen, was only a caricature of real power, real authority, and real rule. Friends, this is the gospel, right? This is The, the gospel is not simply uh, that Jesus dies so that we can go to heaven, though that is a glorious promise of the gospel. But it is that Jesus died for our sins, but rose again in new life to be the world's true king. And therefore, Christian faith is always and inherently public, right? It's not a private matter. It's not just about me and my soul, me and my spirit, me and my eternity. It's public. It's about the entire world. It's about our neighbors. It's about the way that we order our life together, that it's a claim about the nature of the world, the nature of authority and power and rule. Now, we have to be careful here. Sometimes Christians have collapsed that, believing, knowing that the Christian faith is public, that we can't keep it simply private. Uh, we've misjudged that and said that, the, that Christianity is inherently uh, partisan, right? It's political in the sense that it's about a king, but it's not partisan, right? It's not, uh, it, it doesn't participate in uh, the two-party political system of this, this nation. Right, But it is public. It does make claims about the nature of our life in the world. It has claims on our society. It has claims on our public life, not just our private life. Oliver, Oliver O'Donovan, a great English theologian, put it this way in The Desire of Nations, describing the faith of the early church. He says, Christ had gone up on high. He had led captivity captive and given gifts to men. So the nations and rulers of the world were confronted with the rule of God, triumphantly present in a community that owned no other rule. No account of the pre-Nicene, so that's the, the church before the Nicene Creed, the church of the New Testament and immediately after, can do it justice if it overlooks the extraordinary missionary triumphalism to which this faith gave rise. 
These Christians saw themselves riding on the wave of the future, conquering society with the word of truth and the blood of the martyrs, God's own strategy for success. It was only a matter of time before the pagan empire too, with its repellent idolatry, would yield to Christ's army. The faith that animates Peter's teaching here to his church, to these churches in exile, is that they will win, that Christ will be triumphant, and that one day his reign will mark all things. And so the instruction that comes before that in this section that we've read is Peter telling his disciples how to live out that public faith within a pagan society, how to live out that public faith in a society in which most of their neighbors did not believe like they believed. And for that reason, this is a vitally important uh, letter for the church today. And it's, a, it's an important section of the letter for how we find ourselves living our lives. Right? There was a time uh, in, in America, maybe in uh, our grandparents' generation, maybe not even that far back, where Christians could largely assume that their neighbors shared their basic view of the world. Right, Even if they didn't have a personal faith, that they had inherited some basic structures for what they assumed to be true about the world, for what they assumed to be true about justice, for what they assumed to be true about ethics, what they assumed to be true about religion. But we are working out our faith in a post-Christian, pluralist world. right? A world in which we have to know how to interact with our neighbors, how we have to learn how to interact publicly whether it be at work, uh, in the neighborhood, online, in all of the different contexts where we find ourselves, we have to learn to give voice, to give action, to give witness to our faith in a world where we may not uh, share the same faith as that of our neighbors. To learn how the Christian faith makes public claim in a way that's winsome, respectful, but convinced and confident. And so let's look at some of Peter's uh, suggestions and teachings here. First, he says that the Christian faith issues in a new kind of community. We're going to look at a new kind of community, a new life of blessing, and a new boldness and witness. But first, he says that this new faith, this new life in Christ, gives rise to a new kind of human community. Look at how he starts in verse 8. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is uh, a, a throwback or a callback to what he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when he begins to teach uh, the church about their nature as the church. Remember those great uh, words of 1 Peter chapter 2, where he calls them uh, a holy people, a royal priesthood. Right, but he starts, it starts off in that chapter, chapter two. He says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Right? So he's telling the church, look, there are these ways of being together in relationship as human beings. There's things that mark most human relationships that you're going to have to take off, that you're going to have to put off because they can't define who you are as the Christian church. It doesn't take, um, you know, a PhD in political science, to look out at the world around us and to observe the way that human relationships are marked by malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. 
right? I mean, uh, I can think of few more accurate words to describe our common life in 2020 America than malice and slander and deceit and envy and hypocrisy, right? We are struggling in our common life as a people to live together, to, to understand one another, to extend compassion, to extend the benefit of the doubt, to, to live together with respect and civility and honesty and humility. And Peter says, that before you think about changing the world, right, before you think about changing the way that all human beings interact with one another and build relationships, before you think about uh, even, you know, on a, on a national level, how all Americans do so, he says, start in the church. Think about the ways that you relate to one another. And he elicits these character traits, which are a rather beautiful picture to describe the character of Jesus, right? To describe the, what it looks like when the character of Jesus transforms his disciples and then transforms the ways that those disciples live their lives together, right? If we are going to learn to live together uh, as a church, right? As the church globally, but as a church, Christ Church in town, it's going to take each of us putting on the virtues of love that we have in Jesus. It's going to take each of us learning to relate to one another in a posture of love so that the forces of uh, political division, cultural division, racial division that are pulling our society apart at the seams don't tear us apart with it. It's going to take learning this posture of Christ. Unity of mind, meaning the mind of Christ, Right? To, to have a unity of mind doesn't mean that we all think exactly alike or we have all the same opinions. Right? If us agreeing on something uh, it means that, it's going to mean somebody convincing somebody else that their way of looking at something is right. But it's going to mean not that we seek to, prevent, uh, to impose our minds on one another, but that together we seek the mind of Jesus. Together we seek to think his thoughts after him, to, to allow our hearts to be broken by what breaks his heart, what, by what breaks his heart, to by, by letting our minds be shaped by his teaching, his view of the world, his view of our neighbors. Unity of mind in the mind of Christ. Sympathy, feeling with others. That's what sympathy means. It means to join our feelings with the feelings of others. To not allow the sorrows of our neighbors, of our brothers and sisters, to remain outside of us. But to sympathize, to make our neighbor's problems, our neighbor's anxieties, our neighbor's concerns, our very own. Brotherly love. Peter uh, leverages what's a common New Testament uh, reality when the, the New Testament authors talk about the church, which is to say that it's a family. Right, the, the New Testament uh, talks about a unity in the church that in the ancient world was known only in the biological family. A type of sharing of possessions and of life and of hospitality and of all things in the early church. Think about that picture of the church described in Acts 2, having all things in common. Right, That kind of brotherly and sisterly love knits the church together as a family. And so Peter's saying, though you're exiles uh, in the world, the bonds that join you together as a family of faith are deeper than the ties of blood that hold you together with your natural family, with your natural cultures, 
that you are knit together as a family, so brotherly love, a tender heart. Right? It's so easy for our hearts to grow calloused, for our hearts to grow cold, for our hearts, because, it, because genuine sympathy, genuine care and affection for the, the welfare of others, genuinely loving our neighbors as ourselves, because that hurts so deeply, because there is so much sorrow and angst and pain in our neighbors at times, that it's easier to, to wall off our hearts, right? It's easier to grow calluses over our hearts. But Peter says, no, no, keep the posture of a tender heart and a humble mind. A tender heart and a humble mind. To have a humble mind means to be teachable. It means to learn to say words that are so difficult for us to say these days, I could be wrong. I've not considered it from that perspective. Right? A humble mind is different than a soft head. Right? A humble mind doesn't mean that you're naive or that you'll just believe any old idea that comes around. But it does mean that you're humble enough to admit what you don't know while clinging to what you do know. Holding to what you're certain of while recognizing that you can't be certain of all things equally at once. I do think that our current, uh, both media and social media landscape, makes tenderness of heart and humility of mind uh, very, very difficult. It pushes us into having certain uh, and deeply held opinions about all things at once, even things that prior to two weeks ago we'd never once thought about, never done any reading or research on. And so in our day and age, a tender heart and a humble mind should be our prayer. That the Lord Jesus would work that in us. Because what Peter's saying uh, to, his, to his early readers, these people that he's claimed are exiles, uh, aliens, an outpost of the kingdom of God living in a foreign land. What he's saying is that by the virtue of your relationships with one another, by the strength and uniqueness of your life together as a church, you witness to your neighbors that it can be different, right? The, the, the nature of the church's relationships is meant to be a witness that human beings really can live together as brothers and sisters across the differences that typically divide the human family. The church is a sneak preview of the kingdom of God when every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne. And Peter's saying that until we learn to live that way together among ourselves, we won't be a compelling and powerful witness to our neighbors who, make no mistake, are desperate to figure out a way to live together, to not be at one another's throats. And so as we embody the communal life of Jesus, we show that there is a different way. So a new kind of community. Secondly, a new life of blessing. Starting in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 34. The church is blessed in Jesus, right? If you belong to Jesus by faith, by baptism, as Peter says, if you are in Jesus, then you have been baptized into a life of blessing. 
a life of incredible grace, a life of amazing power poured out on you by the Spirit, life of blessing in the fellowship of God's people. But Peter says that that blessing, the point of the Christian life is not merely to be blessed, but then to be a blessing to others, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors. That you're not just blessed in order to be uh, the end of that blessing, but that that blessing might flow through you to the world. This has always been the nature of God's people. Remember in, uh, in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is first called by God to be in covenant with him, God promises Abraham that he'll be blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations of the world, that through him all of the nations of the world will find their blessing. And so Peter tells this small, struggling little church under the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire, that though you look small and weak and cursed in the world's eyes, you are actually there for the blessing of your neighbors, for the blessing of your city, for the blessing of the world. Even when you are hated and suffering and persecuted, you bless. You exist for their blessing. You exist not to get even, you, know, you exist not to, uh, to cling and to fight against them, but you exist for the blessing of the world. Remember we said at one point that, that much of 1 Peter uh, is his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. It follows many of the key teachings of Jesus that Peter would have heard as his disciples sitting there at the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, that Jesus tells us that we're blessed when we're persecuted. That when, uh, when we're struck in the face to turn our other cheek, when our cloak is taken to give our second one as well, that we're called to bless those who persecute us. This is what Peter meant when he called uh, his, his, these churches a royal priesthood. What do priests do? They bless. Levi and Aaron and the, the priests of Israel existed to make intercession, right? To pray for Israel and then to offer God's blessing to Israel. And so Peter's saying that you are those kinds of priests in your world to pray for your neighbors, to lift them before God, and then to bless and not to curse, to share the love and blessing of God and to extend it to them. To trust God to be the one who handles justice. right? We in our lives can be so fixated on getting our rights, on getting what's ours, on getting, on getting even. And yet I think the point of this Psalm 34 quotation that he gives about the life of blessing is all there in the last line. He quotes the psalmist, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Right When you feel like you've been given unjust evil, it's not up to you to turn your face against them in anger and judgment. The Lord does that. You maintain a posture of humility and blessing. The world saw, uh, well, maybe not, I don't know if the whole world noticed, but there was maybe the most beautiful picture of the church taking this posture that I've seen uh, in recent years uh, was by the church in China. Um, in 2018, really for about the last 
two or three years, uh, the Chinese government has been cracking down uh, in really unprecedented ways uh, on religious uh, people in their society. Uh, the Uyghurs, uh, a primarily Muslim minority, have seen it in tremendous, shocking human rights violations uh, in northern China. But the church has also suffered an increased clampdown uh, by the Chinese government. It's something that the entire world ought to be paying attention to. At the end of 2018, um, this started to get a little more uh, publicized in our circles when uh, the pastors of Early Reign Covenant Church, uh, a Reformed Presbyterian church in China, a church that believed most of the same things that we believe, but in a country where they, they lived in some fear of persecution. Well, those fears came to be realized when their pastor and several of their leaders were arrested. And at the end of 2018, 458 Christian pastors signed this incredibly beautiful declaration of the witness of the Christian church in the face of suffering. The whole thing is worth uh, your time to read, but I'm just going to read a paragraph. The whole thing has been uh, about the Christian church's commitment to loving and living at peace with their neighbors and with their government, even while clinging to their faith. And at one point they say this, this is, this is I think, what Peter has in mind. The Christian churches in China are eager and determined to walk the path of the cross of Christ and are more than willing to imitate the older generation of saints who suffered and were martyred for their faith. We are willing and obligated under any circumstance to face all government persecution, misunderstanding, and violence with peace, patience, and compassion. For when churches refuse to obey evil laws, it does not stem from any political agenda. It does not stem from resentment or hostility. It stems only from the demands of the gospel and from a love for Chinese society. The here and there, their willingness to suffer. And in that suffering to bless, right? Even if it means suffering to the point of martyrdom, that we do so under the demands of the gospel and for a love of Chinese society, right? It's for the good of the society that's killing us that we take this posture, these Chinese Christians are saying. That's what Peter's arguing uh, for his Christians, to take a posture of humility and suffering, that they might be a witness to their pagan neighbors. So a new life of blessing, even in the midst of suffering. And then finally, a new boldness of witness. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, Peter is imagining a world in which people are regularly coming up to Christians and asking them for a reason for why they are so different. Right? Imagine that being the case in our lives, right? That, that our lives are so different, 
so marked by those postures of love, of blessing, of tenderness of heart, of humble, of humility of mind, right? That those that, that different kind of community is so living and active, so markedly different, that your neighbors are regularly coming up to you and going, hey, why in the midst of all of the despair, why in the midst of all of the fear, why in the midst of all of the hate that marks our world, why do you have hope? Why can you find hope in the midst of despair? Why can you find love in the midst of estrangement? And so Peter is saying that as you live this different kind of life, it creates this kind of witness to the world. And then when asked to give a reason, you should be willing and able to do so boldly. He cautions that it ought to also be done with gentleness and with respect. Right, Gentleness and respect are two postures for witness or for evangelism that are crucial uh, in a pluralist world where, where people don't all believe exactly what we believe or what you believe. So to be able to take a posture that respects their stories, that respects what they believe, that's gentle, that's patient, but that is boldly willing to say, to announce the truth of Jesus, his lordship over life, salvation through his death, life and his resurrection. The part of what it means for us to love our neighbor, part of what it means for us to seek the common good is to remember that our neighbors are made for God, that our neighbors are made by him in such a way that their hearts will only ever find full satisfaction in a, in a relationship with him through being included in Christ, in his death, in his life, and his resurrection. It's amazing to think that these words come from Peter, right? I mean, when Peter says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, be willing to suffer for righteousness sake. Remember who this is coming from. Remember Peter's life. Remember, this is the same Peter that promised Jesus that he would never betray him, that he would never abandon him and yet who denied three times in his moment of testing when Jesus was headed to trial. And Peter was asked, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Three times Peter said, no, I don't know the guy. Right? This is Peter who at his moment when he was asked to give a reason for his faith, a reason for his hope, instead chose the way of cowardice. The one who failed so miserably and who was exposed in his failure that that same Peter has been transformed, right? That he's been remade by Jesus. Remember at Jesus' resurrection when he, when he appeared to Peter over breakfast by the lake. And just as Peter had rejected him three times, three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? He restores him. He doesn't hold his cowardice against him. He says, if you love me, feed my sheep, follow me. This is the Peter that now in the book of Acts we see giving a bold declaration when put on trial of the content of his faith before the authorities. Peter was transformed from a coward around this issue of witness into someone who could be bold and who could then encourage others in the same way to set apart Christ the Lord as holy and to give a bold declaration. I confess that evangelism is hard for me. I think it's hard uh, for all of us, right? Being willing and able 
to not just love our neighbors with acts of service, with love and kindness, but to be willing to preach, right? To be willing to, to tell our story. It does in this day and age, it makes relationships a bit awkward in this world where the one golden rule is tolerance, right? That we uh, give everyone enough space to believe what they believe and I believe what I believe and never the two should meet. It takes a certain amount of boldness to say that I actually believe what I believe is not just true for me, but it's true. I believe that the grace that saved me didn't just save me, but that it can save you. In fact, if it doesn't, then you're in trouble. It takes some boldness. A recent survey found that around half of uh, the millennial generation of Christians that they surveyed believe that evangelism is morally wrong. Right, that's over half, right around half, it's actually just under half of millennial Christians believe that it's immoral to evangelize, to share our faith, let alone, right, uh, millennials and, and younger uh, who are not Christians. That it's viewed as, as kind of the, the height of moral arrogance in our day and age to say, actually, Jesus died for all. And that this has some implication for you. You were made for him. And yet to love our neighbors and to believe what we believe means that we have to be willing to love not only with our lives, but with our lips. To love not only with our service, but with our proclamation. We can have the confidence to do that because we are in Christ. Baptized into him, you share in his victory. We can remain respectful and gentle and humble and tender and all of those things, and yet bold and courageous and hopeful because Jesus reigns and he rules and he's living and he works. And it's not our words that create life. It's not our words that call people from death to life. It's the words of the king. It's the move of his spirit. Let's pray that more and more we would have opportunity to root our hope in Christ, and then to give reason when asked for the hope that we have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, in the midst of a world that does pull us in so many different directions, let us root our identity in that we are men, women, and children who are baptized into Christ, who belong to you, Lord Jesus, who've been sealed by your Spirit, who are being remade into your image, and who do have a hope that can't be shaken by this world. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to give a clear witness for the reasons for the hope that we have. Lord, help us not to be jerks about it. Um, we have all been hurt, and so many in our, in our world have been hurt uh, by the arrogance of those who believe they have all the answers. But Lord, as Peter said, with gentleness and with respect, give us the words to say. Give us the love and the joy for Christ our Lord to be willing to extend his hope to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.